Hey again, everybody. Good to see all of you uh, and all of you who are online. If you were late um, joining us, hey, that's cool. We were just waiting on you, so glad that you're here. And uh, God's glad that you're here as well. And so hopefully you're going to have a meaningful encounter with, with Jesus today. That's what we pray for every single Sunday. Um, I'm in a summer series right now where we're talking about the life and times of Israel's ancient king, King David. And uh, I think this is the fourth Sunday we're in the series and we're finally going to be introduced to David. So, you know, we've been kind of setting up the, the historical and the um, uh, cultural backdrop to this particular story. So we're going to actually meet the man himself. And to that end, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you've got your Bible, you can flip there old school or you can punch it into your Bible app and, uh, and join us there. 1 Samuel chapter um, 16 is where we're going to be uh, today. Now, there's something that I want to um, um, I want to talk about here. I'm, I, we're going to read through this chapter. I'm going to make some comments as we go along and then hopefully offer a couple of thoughts. But there's something that you have to keep in mind as we're going through this particular story. That Israel is transitioning between kind of tribal regional leadership into a central monarchy. And it, all of this is new to them. So there's no established protocols. Um, uh, Lisa and I have been watching The Crown. Have you guys seen this on Netflix? Um, very interesting story. Um, kind of humanizes the, the monarchy to a certain extent. But one of the things that you notice is that there's these established protocols, some of which were like enacted in like 1400 or 1600 or something along those lines. And so you've got this long history of how, not, not just what to do, but how you do them. Here in the case of, of ancient Israel, you don't have any of that. I mean, this is brand spanking new stuff. We moved from the judges to Saul as a king, and now we're going to be talking about David as a king. And so there's no, you know, there's no history here. They're kind of, I'm not saying they're making it up as they go along, but kind of, you know, it's kind of improving some of this stuff. So, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, jump into um, the story and talk about it a little bit more. Saul, um, King Saul, Israel's first king, the tall and handsome one, was anointed. Um, but as we saw last week, his heart and his actions were not aligned with, with what God wanted, with God's word. And so um, two things in particular that I'll, I'll just point out. First is that he performed some sacrifices that he was not authorized to do so by the law. It's a big deal. Um, nor did he wait until the appointed time. He got a little impatient. Sound familiar to anybody? Yes, it happens to all of us. But secondly, there's another incident where he was given a very specific mission by God, prophesied, you are to do X, Y, and Z. And he didn't quite um, complete it as it was required. He didn't fully do it. And as such, it demonstrated the fact that his heart was not fully aligned with God. He didn't have the alignment. You might remember this. Um, I'm finding this a very useful um, diagram. But you have, you have the word of the Lord, whether that comes from the Bible or something that speaks to directly to you or somebody else prophesying over you, whatever it happens to be, you have this um, word of the Lord your heart and your actions. And we often talk about this idea of your heart and your actions being aligned, and we call that authenticity. 
But we also have to bring ourselves into agreement with God's word. And when we have that, now we have alignment between those three things. Does this make sense? Um, I, I found myself returning back to this several times just in the last week. And in, in relation to my own self and to my own journaling, just going, all right, David, where's your heart? What's God saying to you? And, and where am I? And how are my actions going to come out of this? Um, it can be a bit shocking if you're, <laughs> if you're not careful. I'll just tell you that up front. Um, but this is something that we see that Saul did not have, is that his actions and his heart were not in agreement with what God's word was. Now, that doesn't make him a horrible king. It was just not the king that God actually wanted for Israel at that time. So you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that as a king, he still performed um, kingly duties and, and um, probably governed the people you know, fairly well, but wasn't doing it according to uh, you know, you know, God's idea about those things, which you know, in the long run is probably not a good idea. So um, God looks for a new king. And so let's go into the text and see what we can learn from it as we see how God chooses the next king, this man that we call David. So here, here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, Samuel is that odd figure in history that we mentioned a couple of of weeks ago where he bridges the gap between Old Testament judge and Old Testament prophet. He actually has a dual role here. Oh, and by the way, he also happens to be a priest. So he's, he's kind of got the trifecta going on. And so when he, when he anoints Saul, there's a lot of hope in him because he understood what was happening uh, in Israel at that time. God knew that they were going to ask for a king, and Samuel was, was trying to find the right person for the job, and, and so did as God asked him to do and anointed Saul, and now he's sad because that king isn't working out. So how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him? And then he says, I'm going to send you on, and I have picked somebody already. So um, moving on to verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. All right, let's try to understand this in very human terms because I think it's, it's really easy to kind of, you know, over-spiritualize some of this stuff. So <clears throat> Samuel is sent with a brand new mission. He's supposed to go and anoint a brand new king. Um, and again, there's no established protocols for this, but he has to create or has to have a cover story so that he avoids suspicion. Because when there's, when there's no established protocols, obviously there's going to be political intrigue. Because I'm fairly convinced at this point in my life that anytime you have a group of human beings that you're gonna find some politics. And I don't care if it's in a, in a small office or if it's you know, a large government. You just have lots of politics. People with differing opinions about things and, and um, 
who have certain amounts of, of power and authority are all going to have politics in some way, shape, or form. And so we see that going on here. Samuel is, is concerned. He goes, you know, if he suspects something, I'm in trouble. So there's a cover story, okay? Now I like this, this next part of the story. Samuel did what the Lord said, took the cover story and ran with it. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Isn't that funny? And they asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, this is kind of fascinating because Samuel has a reputation. He's a tough guy. You read part of Samuel's story, you'll see what I mean. Um, he has no problem drawing the sword himself if he needs to. He's, he's, he's that kind of guy. And, and I think this is an important point to make because in times of transition, moving from regional tribal leadership to a centralized government, in that type of transition, you gotta have a strong leader. Somebody with, filled with conviction and with courage and wisdom to do the right thing, and that's Samuel in this regard. So keep that in mind. Um, having a certain amount of fear and respect is not necessarily a bad thing for a leader, especially if there's a points of transition. Um, it's interesting to think about that a little bit, but they trembled. Obviously, they were afraid that Samuel was coming with some type of prophetic judgment, I would presume that was the case. Um, I think in politics they call it the hatchet man. <laughs> it was kind of Samuel. It's kind of the impression that I get. All right, moving on to verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw um, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So this is Jesse's eldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, keep, keep this one in mind because Saul was particularly tall and, and he was uh, handsome. And so here we have um, what, I, what I like to call the uh, Impanema trap. You know, the girl from Impanema, the boy from Impanema. You know the song, right? I don't remember who sang it, but anyway, tall and dark and young and handsome. Okay, maybe some of you get it later. <laughs> the point is, is that they wanted somebody who was attractive for this particular role, and God's saying, that's, that's not the thing that you have to consider. There's something else here. Remember, God's looking for the alignment. God's word, your heart, your actions, making sure those things are aligned. That's what he's after, and so he's looking for the person who can do that. So here we go, verse 10. <clears throat> Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Seven sons. Can you imagine that grocery bill? Oh my goodness. I can't imagine what that would be like. But I, you know, Jesse's this family patriarch and he's got these sons and, and he's showing them off to Samuel. I'm, it's almost like this dog and pony show. I, I think that's going on. And he kind of trots them out and no, that's not it. No, that's not him. No. But in verse 11, he's like, is that it? I and mean, is that all the sons you have? Because God clearly told me something. There was a prophetic utterance made. He received that, that prophecy that I have chosen one of Jesse's sons and here's the seven of them and he's not, so there's gotta be another one. So is that it? That's the question. Verse 12, and I want you to pay close attention to this. 
So he sent for him and had him brought in. This is David. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Okay, now we, we need to pull this verse apart a little bit because there's some interesting things in here that you need to, to understand what's happening. So, um, let's see, how do I want to break this up? Okay, so when he talks about this idea of glowing with health, the actual term that's used here in Hebrew is ruddy. R-U-D-D-Y, ruddy. And you think about ruddy, what do you think of? Well, you think about somebody who's been outside. And ruddy comes, at least in, in English, from the term red, okay? Um, there are other people in the Old Testament that are described as ruddy, one of which is Esau. Esau was a man of the field. He was a, a hunter, and he was ruddy. You find that back in the book of, of Genesis. Here, David is described in a similar fashion. He's ruddy. Now, what's interesting to note is that if you go back to ancient pieces of, of pottery from the ancient Near East, you will notice uh, a very common pattern that when men are depicted on these pieces of pottery, they're almost always colored red. Women are colored yellow. And that was one of the distinguishing features in the ancient Near East, red and yellow. In fact, if I remember correctly, um, in contrast to Esau, um, you have Jacob, the deceiver, who is described as yellow. That he wasn't quite as manly as his brother was. Isn't that interesting? So here in this particular case, we see that David is considered ruddy. He's dripping with testosterone. He's a man's man. He's an alpha male. He's that kind of thing. And here he is. He shows up and he is glowing with health. He is ruddy. <clears throat> um, and he has a fine appearance and handsome features. And this simply means that he was easy on the eyes. He was good to look. He was good looking. Now, isn't it interesting that just previously, God says, he says up front, he goes, I don't just look at that. But in this particular case, I happen to find somebody whose heart is aligned with mine and, and they're, you know, easy on the eyes. They're good, it's uh, good to look at. So um, you can't disqualify somebody by the way they look, but that's not the only thing that you consider. So God's choice is still really, really good. And when I read this, it kind of goes against the, the standard sort of, you know, only a little shepherd boy type of idea, okay? Um, the whole junior asparagus thing for you veggie tales lovers doesn't really fit this picture of, of, of a ruddy type of, of shepherd. And of course, you know, if you're a shepherd and, and you've got to protect sheep, there's all kinds of wild animals and we find out later that, that David does actually defeat all of them. Uh, bears, lions, tigers, oh my, right? <clears throat> and so here we have this good-looking young man who's, who's actually quite fit, quite hale, uh, quite strong. Um, the other thing that you'll, uh, that you'll learn later on when we talk about David and Goliath is that if you are going to sling a stone, we're not talking about little pebbles. You're usually talking about a rock that's probably you know, a pound or more. And you got to put that thing in a sling and you got to hurl that thing around. I mean, you've got to have 
a well-developed upper body to be able to sling that thing with any amount of accuracy. So keep that in mind too. David's not this kind of, you know, weakling sort of character that I think our flannel graphs in Sunday school has made him out to be, but rather he's actually a picture of strength and a picture of, um, uh, what sort I'm looking for? Um, strength, I mean, I mean, he eventually becomes a, quite a great warrior. So it starts here when we see this. So the evidence is that he was quite strong. Um, to watch over his, over his flocks. We need to keep that in mind. Um, and I think one of the things that, that also strikes me about this is that we presume things about God. Like in the New Testament, there's this notion that God always chooses the humble over the proud. And yes, that's true. And he'll, he'll um, choose the mundane over the excellent. But sometimes God does choose excellence depending on the set of circumstances and what he needs at the time. He's looking for the heart. And that's the important piece of all of this. All right, so, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went, or he returned to Ramah, which was his hometown. We found that out earlier. But I think this is an important little feature here, is that, you know, he gets anointed, um, but the spirit came powerfully on him. And the interesting thing, I think, to remember is that David was always considered a worshiper. He was a worshiper first. Many of the psalms that we read are written by him in worship. And so keep in mind that power always follows presence. We've been talking about that for you know months now. But if you want to experience the power of God, you first have to experience the presence of God. Those two things go hand in hand. And here we have an Old Testament example, not just a New Testament example. But we have this idea that this power comes upon him in the anointing, but largely because he's been in the presence of God and he's aligned with the heart of God, right? So we have God's word, we have God, and we have our hearts and our actions. And he has full alignment there, and that's where we see the, the um, spirit rest upon him powerfully. Okay? So... There's some stuff going on in this verse about, about David that, you know, first glance, it's very easy to miss. But there's something here I really want to point out in verse, in verse 2. So we've been kind of through this story, and I want to point this out. And I think this is important. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Now, like I said, with politics and the circumstances, this is perfectly reasonable for for Samuel to, to think. Um, there's political intrigue that happens. But this is also incredibly human, if you think about it. There's a certain amount of fear, fear, even though Samuel has been given a direct order by God. He understood what God said. I'm sending you to Jesse because I'm going to have you anoint a brand new king. Incredibly important. He knew that. There's no question in his mind, and yet he still has a certain amount of, of fear. Sometimes I think we believe that when we receive a word from God that everything just kind of lines up. Not necessarily so. There's still consequences for that. And yes, I think God works through that, but that doesn't necessarily make it easy. And so Samuel is, is demonstrating that to us here. Um, so even though he kind of has the reputation of being a tough guy, he still has some fear. He understands what's at stake here. And he's, he's even um, 
has this direct message, but fear and self-preservation are sometimes um, bedfellows. Would you agree? I think so. This kind of reminds me a little bit about what happened with the disciples in the New Testament. They're going across um, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has said, we need to get to the other side. And so they, they, they get in the boat. Jesus goes and takes a nap. And a, and a storm, which are you know, quite common along the Sea of Galilee, blows up. And all the disciples are freaking out. And they wake Jesus up. Don't you care what happens to us? And so Jesus, what does he do? He gets up and he calms the storm. And they're all amazed by all of it. And, and there's this notion here that goes, you know, don't you have any faith? I told you where we were going. Don't you have any faith that we're actually going to get there? This is the, the message, I think, of that story. Yeah, storms are not going to, going to impede the progress of the kingdom of God. And by the way, rejected kings are not going to either. Does that make sense? So you have this, this idea I, I, of, you have this idea going on here that yes, fear is very human, but when you receive that, that word from God, you can have some confidence that it may not go perfect, but at least it's going to occur. And you have to be open to that. And I think this is one of the reasons why we encourage everybody to actually journal. Write it down. If you feel like God has said something to you, it's a great idea for you to actually write this thing down because you may have to refer to it from time to time to remind you that God actually said something. And that will give you the confidence and the courage that, that, that you need as you, as you go through whatever that process is that he has in mind for you. So write that thing down. And it's so that you remember. You remember that God actually spoke this. Very important. So when God speaks, when God actually speaks, a couple things I want to I think about. When God actually speaks, <clears throat> sometimes God will tell you what he is going to do. I'm going to do, mm. I'm going to heal. I'm going to um, give you provision, whatever it happens to be. Sometimes, um, he's going to tell you exactly what he will do. And in that sense, you have to have a couple of things in order to see that through. One is patience. Oh, we are so good with that, aren't we? And the second thing is, um, you have to have faith that what God said, he's going to accomplish. And patience and faith are often, um, are often go hand in hand. Oh, I just love that. Great. But it's true. There are some times where God says, I am going to do, hmm, and I've got a couple things in my journal that I've clearly sensed over the years that this, you know, God said that he was going to do something. I'm still waiting. And I still have to have faith. And I still have to occasionally write myself a note. This is something that God said to me. One of, one of which was almost 20 years ago now. I'm still waiting for it. Oh, that's cool. Patience and faith. Those two things. So um, there's this interesting little story in the New Testament where a, a man brings a son who is demon-possessed. You, you remember the story. And he ends up being in the presence of Jesus and throwing a fit. And the, the man says that, you know, he's been like this for a long period of time and he often tries to throw himself in the fire to destroy himself. You know the story, right? And, um, and he says, if you can help him. And um, 
you know, all things for those who believe. And, and he goes, oh, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief, right? That's kind of where when God says he's gonna do something, sometimes we have to be humble enough to go, oh, help me with my unbelief. That's where patience and faith come into the picture. Help me with my unbelief because I need it. At that kind of, that level. Just keep that in mind. You're in good company if you're trying to deal with patience and faith. But other times, and I think maybe more often, I think God gives us an opportunity to walk his word out. Remember, we have, we have God's word, we have our heart, and we have our action. And so God will give his word, and it might be something he does, but more often than not, it's an opportunity for us to come into agreement with him and then to actually walk that thing out. Um, I think, I mentioned this before, I think it was T.D. Jakes who made, made the comment that, you know, we want, we ask God for things like tables and, and chairs, but God doesn't do tables and chairs, God does trees. Or perhaps we might ask God for an oak tree and he gives us an acorn. You understand this, right? He gives us certain resources, but there is a certain amount of effort that we have to um, engage in or, or put into the project in order for it to come to fruition. So God gives us the opportunity to, to do something. Um, a great example of this is uh, I, I heard about a um, person, uh, I think they were like a concert pianist or concert violinist, I don't remember which, it doesn't really matter. But it was prophesied that they would be, you know, be great and well-known. Well, that's never gonna happen if that person doesn't pick up a violin and practice it, right? There are certain things that you have to do in order to um, see you know, God work through and, and come into fruition. So again, it's not just the heart that's come into a, agreement with God's word, but also you've got your actions um, that's a, in alignment with, with your heart as well. So in that particular case, the issue is not necessarily patience and, and faith, but rather prayer and practice. You, you gotta engage in those things, right? And this is kind of how I view discipleship is that God wants us to become like Jesus, but it's not a magic wand where, you know, you believe in Jesus and all of a sudden you're like him. Well, it happens every now and then, but for the vast majority of us, we've got to slog through all of our stuff, all the things that we've dealt, dealt with um, in our history, in our past, a lot of painful things, um, sometimes even trauma, and we've got to work through those particular issues and, and we have to have a certain amount of prayer and practice. And this is why, you know, we use, in our case, we use journaling as a way of doing that. There are other ways to do it. That just happens to be a good one. But the point is you've got to engage in something because discipleship just doesn't happen. I wish it did. But this is a case where, you know, we get the acorn, not necessarily the oak tree. So prayer and practice becomes a part of that. And so the thing that, it, that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to drive at here with all of this, and don't miss this, is that it, the, the first step in all of this is you gotta hear him. You, you have to hear God, which means you've gotta be in his presence, you gotta hang out with him, you gotta inquire of him, you have to ask questions, ask questions of yourself too, and then you've got another step. Not only to be in his presence, but step two <laughs> is you either need to be patient or you need to get to work. Wait or work. Those are the options. And depending on what you heard God say, um, you know what to do. If it's something that he's going to do on your behalf, then you just wait for it. If it's something that you need to do, 
then you need to get to work. And yeah, it's that simple. But it isn't easy, is it? Well, a lot of you know what that's like. And it happens to all of us. But the step, the first step in all of this is that you've got to actually hear. You've got to know what, what God is saying. And so you have, in this particular case, Samuel, a prophet of God, who's clearly heard a message from the Lord. But he also goes and he anoints a worshiper first. David, we know, is a worshiper. And that particular sense of presence of God allows the Holy Spirit to empower him to do, well, as we'll see in coming chapters, to do some pretty amazing things. So the lesson from all of this, I think, is that, yeah, you need to be listening. Then the question is, what's next? Wait or work? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm grateful for stories like this that show us uh, your heart. You, you give us a direction here. You help us to see um, how you interact with us, even in the Old Testament. And my prayer is, Lord, that as each one of us um, are here and we're, we're listening to the words, I pray first and foremost that every person gathered here would have a stronger sense of your presence prayed that before, that we'd actually hear from you and then be able to wait or to work for it. Help us to see things as clearly as we can and to follow you so that we have alignment with the words that you're saying. Oh God, help us to hear them. Give us the, the ears to hear and the heart to follow. And uh, I want to be... Um, part of a group of people who are seeking that individually and together. Thank you for these words. Lord, would you um, send your spirit now to fill us, to speak to each one of us individually and collectively. What is it that you want to say to us through this word as we reflect on it? We trust that your spirit will do only what you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.
Lord, I just want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for this opportunity to get together. Um, I've said before, if you, if you could make an appointment with the creator of the universe, why wouldn't you show up? Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for providing. Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to praise you, um, for the little things like the safety to get here. Um, Lord, and we just ask that you watch over us the rest of this day. Uh, Lord, we ask that you uh, keep us safe. Uh, Lord, we ask that you just guide and direct the rest of this day. And again, we thank you for, for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, there are some newer faces. So if you don't know me, uh, I'm James. Uh, I've, over the last five years, served as an intern and as the discipleship pastor uh, here at Thrive. Um, The last year has changed a lot. Um, and I think the word that uh, sums it up for me is refined. It's refined a lot. Um, with that said, uh, this will be our last Sunday here at Thrive. Um, my heart is only heavy because of the relationships that I've built here. I'm so proud of the work that I've done here. I'm so, so proud of um, everything I've been able to accomplish here. Um, and I want to thank each and every one of you for that. Um, Brian and I are, are in a place physically, um, downtown uh, Tulsa, where that's where our heart is. Um, and we feel like uh, we feel like there's something else out there for us to accomplish right now, um, and what that means a lot of times in the church is that you part ways, and you move to a different town, um, and you start a new ministry. We'll be here in Tulsa. Um, we'll just be in a different part. Um, I'm not headed to another church right now. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of uh, soul searching and a lot of refining on our own, um, but as Thrive is changing, um, it, it was the best time to do this. So again, I just wanna thank each and every one of you um, for the relationships that we've had here, um, uh, for your participation in everything that you've done. Um, and uh, I wanna thank David and the rest of the staff here for providing us a place to, to do what God has called me to do. So thank you things that you learn how to do 
it's one of the hard things in ministry is you hold on to people loosely. It's the part I hate, I really do. But you learn to do that because the Lord has ideas for people that aren't my ideas. Um, and James and I have actually been talking about stuff like this for a while, and it's been very clear to me for a long time that God's doing something in his heart. And Brianna too, I mean, I mean you, you can't be around them without feeling their love for a particular part of town and for certain groups of people. And just, I'm thrilled on the one hand that they are following God in this. And on the other hand, I hate the fact that it's, it's not here, that it's probably somewhere else. And so I'm grateful to you for your partnership. Um, James has been my personal political pundit for quite some time. <laughs> When I don't understand things, I call him up and he explains them to me in ways that I do understand, uh, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but the thing that we have to remember, all of us, um, even though we hold on to people loosely, is that the relationships may change a little bit, but we're still connected. And we still love and we still honor and we're so grateful for the work that he's done. And I, my, my gratitude isn't just for the work that he's done, but the fact that he's still following Jesus. And he's going to go and he's going to do that somewhere else with his family. And I'm so great, um, grateful for that testimony and the, the prophetic nature of that because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If he's done it in the past, he will do it again. And I believe that that's going to happen in their lives. Um, it's uh, been a weird year not having him around quite like we've had in the past. And... Uh, but I think he's right. Uh, the timing is just kind of aligned for this one. So I'm going to pray for James and for Bree and, and the kids and just invite you to, to join me in that. God, thank you. Thank you for, for um, highlighting certain individuals to us, for calling them, for putting this uh, idea of ministry on their heart and then equipping them and encouraging them along the way to continue to follow you. And what's so amazing in your economy is you pour into people, they pour into others, and we're all encouraged by it. I'm so grateful for James and Bree and the kids and their work here, Thrive Church. I love them, um, and I miss them already. Um, but Lord, it's clear that you're up to something, and I thrilled that they're willing to follow you. So God, would you bless them in the name of Jesus and as uh, James feels my hand on his shoulder, that pressure, I pray that's a pressure of blessing and that you would add your blessing to it um, because I know that you have good things in mind for all of them. They are going to see amazing things happen because of the work that you're doing because the work that you have done and the work that you will continue through his life as he continues to follow you, as they all do. Please protect their health and safety, their identity as followers of Jesus, and empower them in truly special ways um, so that they can see the kingdom of God um, become a reality in front of them. I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Well, um, one brief announcement that I want to make is that next week, um, the 4th of July, is Family Sunday. 
and that means that the kids will be in here with us. Uh, Molly will be back um, to lead worship. I'm looking forward to that again. I like the piano. I like hearing that. It's really nice. And thank you for filling in, by the way. I appreciate that, my friend. And uh, so when we get back together again next week, uh, we'll, we'll be here as a family together. But until then, my prayer for you is that you would pursue the presence of God, that you would experience the presence of God and find that there's a certain power in that as well. Please remember, Jesus is real. Thanks for being here. See you again next week. Grace and peace.